Pastor Mike, your prayer, especially need this morning. Um, you, you guys are doubly blessed because you have two pastors with asthma, so <laughs> we have certain days where it's a little tricky. So if I go into spasms, it's all right. Um, it's not COVID; it's just asthma, <laughs> dry coughs. And right now, my muscles around my ribs are kind of sore right now from last week. But, um, but by God's grace, we'll we will carry on. Um, so we are uh, stepping aside for this month uh, because it's Christmas. I wanted to uh, keep the focus there a little bit, so I'm going to actually uh, speak from Matthew today, and um, God willing, doing Matthew chapter one today and Matthew chapter two on Christmas Sunday morning. So I invite you to find your way there if you've got your own copy of handy for you to look on with. I do have, I think, not all the text on slides today. I'm going to confess to you just a little bit of my personal geekiness. Uh, growing up, um, my favorite books, books that I have read more than once, I won't tell you how many times, were Chronicles of Narnia, seven books, not just The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all of them, and they are Tolkien's books. I was introduced to Hobbit in high school. I um, devoured that with delight. And then when I found out that there were three more books, even bigger, that continued the story, oh, I couldn't wait to get my hands on that. Devoured those. Then what? There's more? There's a Silmarillion thing? Oh, yeah, got to have that too. So I've been through all of those things a number of times. So... When there were these movies that came out that are supposed to, you know, dramatize these things. Now we're talking still when I'm young, when I when I'm a teenager. There was some there was a, a Hobbit um movie, which um the animation is crude to say the, <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, I, I, I loved it because it represented that story, you know, I wanted to see that. But I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great someday people could find out a way to do this in a more realistic way, you know, people and stuff, you know, actors. And then they they developed similar style of things for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I think they fell short. They only did like the first two books kind of covered, and then they then they dropped it, and they were disappointed. And then there was the there were a few attempts at the Chronicles of Narnia. There was uh, you know I think maybe three of them or something like that that they that they did, and they had this um you know the old um, animated uh, animatronic uh, you know creatures. So they had you know Aslan the lion as an animatronic thing moves in two different axes, pretty much. And, um, uh, well, it was, it was awfully fun to see real actors there, and I just thought, if they could get everything together as they developed. So then, late 1990s, approaching the millennium, rumors, some guy in New Zealand developing real live-action movies, versions of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, my goodness, the anticipa- anticipation began to build is he going to do it right? Is he going to be fair to the books? Is he going to make it look realistic? Is it going to be really good? And the wondering, how is he going to manage these things? Because when you have these you know, fanciful things, and you know, at the time we didn't have quite all of the CG development that we have today, or it wasn't common. And so I thought, how is he going to make these things look realistic? And just the wondering, I could, I'm just counting down days practically. They announced when they were going to roll out the first movie months in advance. It was on my calendar, waiting. 
anticipating, wondering, how is he going to pull it off? Is it going to be good? Am I going to be disappointed? Well, I won't give you my full review of the movies, but not terribly disappointed, I can say that. Um, people could just stick to the books that are written sometimes. But anyway, but impressive movies, really exciting, really very enjoyable, and of course, I've watched those more than once now, too. So I, I think I'm a proper geek, but, but I have loved, loved these. And the, the anticipation, sometimes almost painful, was also part of what made it so special. And wondering, looking forward to how it's going. Well, something much greater was a cause of much more anticipation for a much greater period of time. From the time of the fall, Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that, that one of their descendants one day would bring about the correction of this tremendous problem they had introduced to the world, the problem of sin, the curse of sin came as a result. One day there would be would ultimately destroy the disease that led them into the Then, long time, that, about 2,000 years, God spoke to a particular man lived over the Persian Gulf area, plucked this man out of all of humanity, said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. A man who had no children left. Make a great nation. And through you, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations. Thomas, could Abraham understand what that meant? How was God going to achieve this? How was God going to make him a great nation? How was God going to send an offspring who would be a blessing to all the nations, all the peoples of the world? How would God do this? What would that look like? Abraham couldn't know. God repeated this promise Abraham's son Isaac, saying essentially the same things. Did Isaac understand what that was going to mean? What it would look like? You can only imagine. You can only guess. God repeated it to Isaac's son Jacob. And he directed Jacob to make certain predictions over his sons. One of them in particular, Judah. I don't know. Then later, one of Judah's descendants, a young man named David, who was a shepherd. He was the youngest of a whole big family of boys. He was considered the least. It was almost an afterthought. God gave him great promises and said, through you, your offspring, one who reigns. What does that look like? What do you suppose went through David's mind? He tried to imagine, what, how is God going to pull this off? I'm nobody. What did he mean by that? Millennia, God's people dissipated an anointed Savior, someone come to these great historic things that they could 
scarcely understand. That's the first point in the outline. Millennia, God, God's people anticipated, they wondered, they looked forward to this anointed one. And there's a, a word that, that became part of the prophecies throughout the Old Testament as that time um, transpired from the earliest predictions and, and as it moved closer and closer to the time of Christ's arrival. There was this word, this label that was used in reference to this promised one that God kept talking about in kind of vague and yet grand terms. Mashiach. Messiah. So people anticipated the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one that God was going to send to do these, these great things, to deal with the problem of sin, to, to bless all the peoples, all the nations of the earth, and to and to reign forever one day. What would he look like? How would God deliver him to the world? Seems like it's awfully important. Must be big, grand plans that to present this individual to the world. Well, as he spoke to Abraham, he gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And he actually spoke to Abraham a few times, but this is maybe the fullest iteration of that. God described what he was going to do. And, and he pointed out a couple of things here. Let's read the passage of Genesis 22, verses 15, 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, remember that was the test of whether he was willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring, that are come by the way, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed. There are a couple things here that we see in this promise. There's a lot there to unpack, but just cursory observation we see that there's going to be a direct physical descendant. Use this word offspring very clearly, unquestionable. This is someone who's going to be of your bloodline, Abraham. Someone who sends from you is going to do these things. And secondly, it's going to be a spiritual blessing to all the nations. This one is going to be emissary of God himself bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So, quite a promise to Abraham. Direct physical descendant who will be a spiritual blessing to all the nations. Well, then he also spoke later to David, as I mentioned. Uh, God came to David, and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, we see, and I'm going to also just jump to verse 16 from there as well. God's speaking to David. He's become king. And the context is that David has uh, determined that he wants to build a, a house for God. He wants to build a temple, the place of worship. Because it's, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been in tents all along. It had been the tabernacle, the, the mobile version of the, of the temple that God had instructed Israel to build while they were wandering in the wilderness. And it, and it troubled David that he was so blessed and that this magnificent palace. He was enjoying all the trappings of being king, and he felt it was not right for 
God's presence, his, the ark, to be still in a, in a tent. So he, he had set his mind to building a beautiful, amazing temple for God. God sent Nathan the prophet to him to say, essentially in my paraphrase, did I ask you to build me a house? Do I need you to do that for me? Haven't I been the one who has delivered all of the people of Israel out of Egypt and brought them out here? And in fact, David, what's going to happen is I'm going to build a house for you. There he turned, he equivocated on the term and turned it around to indicate that he was going to give David very special descendancy, very special heritage. That I don't need you to build a house for me. I'm going to build your house. So here comes his promises, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, um, this is carrying on from the, in the middle of the context, that I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down, down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So he's talking in the, in the immediacy. There's an element there of talking about the fact that God was going to raise up Solomon. Solomon, the opportunity to build the temple. But he's promising that it's going to go beyond that. He's going to, going to extend David's house to where there will be a ruler who rules forever. The big promises. So see the promise to David here? Two things. A direct physical descendant. Once again, he even says very explicitly, will issue from your body, right? So it's very clear what he means by offspring in the context. And this will be an eternal ruler, term forever, more than once in the context. Now, this is interesting because it is a fulfillment of, of a prophecy that was kind of an incidental prophecy, I guess if you call it that, uh, when God directed Jacob to speak over each one of his sons on his deathbed before passing. He talked about each one of his sons and the tribes that would issue from them and what their status, what their characteristics would be throughout history. And it all came exactly true. I want, to look, I want you to look with me briefly at Genesis 49, where Jacob was doing this and all the time, and he spoke to Judah. Now, Judah, if you, if you recall, was fourth in the lineup of the 12 sons. No, we're talking ancient Middle Eastern tradition here. It was always the firstborn son who was given the place of privilege and became the next patriarch of the family, the clan, the tribe. So it should have been Reuben. But Reuben had been kind of a naughty boy. And then so had the next two, Levi and Simeon, two and three. Maybe I got this but those two together got into some shenanigans, got them in trouble as well, with Jacob especially. And so Jacob passes this sort of birthright, this status on to number four in the lineup, Judah. This is what he says over Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, till tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedient peoples. That people term goes beyond just the reference to So we see God already moving as early as that. Back in, in Egypt, book of Genesis, God speaks to Jacob that the tribe of Judah would be particularly And now we have David as a direct descendant in the tribe of Judah who is given these promises. So all of this, and there's so much more that builds anticipation. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are very specific about the Messiah, where he would be born, what kind of person he would be born, things that would happen, because it's interesting, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but then it says that he comes out of Egypt, and it says that he's from Nazareth and Galilee, and you've got to imagine that the people throughout the ages, as they saw these prophecies, wondered, well, how is God going to make this work? How is this one Messiah going to be from three different places? And so many other details surrounding that. By the way, there have been mathematicians, I've mentioned this before, but it's been a long, time, long enough time, um, perhaps. Mathematicians have looked at the, at the statistical possibilities of the fulfillment of just a handful of these prophecies that were written. Now, the, the, the ancientness of the texts of the Old Testament really cannot be contested anymore. There have been those historically who have tried to do that, but they're about 100 years behind in their academics, at the very least, uh, because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance. All, everything has been, you know, the virus and everything that was tested and, and graded by historians all over the world to be truly, truly ancient, and it contains all of the Old Testament in it. Not to mention, we have Greek translations extra-biblical references of, of all the Old Testament scriptures by other people in history, the timing of whom are not questioned at all. And so there's just no intelligent, educated way to question whether or not all of those prophecies in the Old Testament time actually were written and declared well before the time of Jesus. So attempts that people have made in the past to say, all oh, these were forged documents written after the time, reflecting on what happened, trying to make it look like they were prophecies that were fulfilled, that just falls completely flat. So we have these prophecies that were written a thousand years, 700 years, 500 years, 400 years prior to the arrival of Jesus. And taking just a handful of them, mathematicians have, have looked at the possibilities of them being fulfilled by coincidence in one person, just taking a half a dozen of them or so, the location and, you know, a few different things like that, things over, over which, you know, Jesus and his family really couldn't have direct control, so a person couldn't manufacture these things, say, oh, I'm going to try to fulfill prophecies that look like the Messiah. They couldn't, there are many things he had no control over, and at this calculation, now this is an American, so you'll have to forgive, you know, the reference, of, but uh, it talks about the state of Texas, if you've ever seen Texas, it's a big state. Close, I think, in equivalency to Tasmania. So you take, you take that space, 
and they say you cover it uh, with quarters, which are essentially the same size as 20% piece. So you cover the whole state, the whole surface in quarters, a foot deep, 30 centimeters. Take one quarter, put a mark on it, and get Superman to chuck that thing out in the middle of the state somewhere and shake the whole thing up. Now send somebody in blindfolded to make one selection, and it's supposed to be that marked quarter. Those are the chances of just about six of the prophecies of Messiah being fulfilled by coincidence one person. But there are a hundred. So there's no question in my mind the reality of who Jesus is. So it's truly significant. So imagine the anticipation of people seeing all these prophecies, all these details, and yet thinking, how is God going to make this happen? How can this possibly happen and, and be true of one person? So we see that Jesus' birth really was the climax of long anticipation. And we see in these passages here, uh, we, we read kind of the parallel. Glenn read for us the, the Luke passage that is really uh, parallel largely to this passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment in Matthew. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 1, so if you're looking in the copy, you can be there. We see the legal and genetic descent of Abraham and King David. So God gave these promises. He chose Abraham and gave these promises to him. He chose David and gave these promises to him. And, and now we're going to see the legal and genetic descent of Abraham and King David attested to in these genealogies reference to Christ. So in Matthew, we have a legal descendant through Joseph. Now, if you've ever noticed, if you didn't really think about it carefully or something like that, you could read the genealogy of Christ here in Matthew 1, and then you might another time read the genealogy in Luke 3 and say these look very different from each other. How can these both be genealogies of the same person? Well, yeah, two parents. One of them, this one, is Joseph's lineage, leading to Christ, and the other, in Luke, is Mary's. They're both descendants of Abraham, both direct descendants of King David. And so you see the careful wording in the text here, not claiming that Jesus was born of Joseph, but indicating that he was his legal descendant, and so by legal rights, he was in line to the throne, the throne of David. And in Mary's case, genetic, right? So uh, let's just read this passage here and make some further comment based on Matthew chapter 1. Start verses 1 through 17. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice these two characters that are introduced very particularly, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. Notice how that goes right to Judah, even though he's the father of Reuben and so on, focusing on Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, 
and Aminadab, the father of Nachshon, Nachshon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, we're familiar with that character, right? By Rahab. Remember, some of you grew up in Sunday school and you remember these connections. Maybe it's not, maybe not all of you, right? We learn about Boaz, who ends up marrying Ruth, but not everybody remembers that Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, was his mom. And then Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Then Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. We have David, who's the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. I say it three times fast. Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. I love that name. Somebody, somebody, one of you needs to. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. How that bridges across there. Of whom, Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now a couple of comments before we go any further on that. Because there are those also who have kind of looked into this genealogy and compared it to the Old Testament passage and said, now wait a minute, see, I told you the Bible is full of errors because there are people who are skipped over in this. Those 14 generations from this to that and the other and skip so and so and so and so and so and so. It's true. There are people who are skipped in this. But we have to understand something. This is a little bit of this lesson, I guess, on the side. Hebrew writers in the ancient Middle East and others around them, Aramaic, um, there are some neighboring cultures and languages learned a lot. Um, Adian. Um, they had different conventions than we have today. And so a lot of times they did things for, because of the oral tradition. They did things to make things neat and tidy and memorable. And so this grouping of 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations is to give a general outline of the descendancy. And there are some ellipses in there. There are some considered less significant individuals in the chain who are just kind of glossed over but they're assumed and they're known because of all the oral work put into all their genealogies and that sort of thing. So Matthew was kind of making this a tidy, memorable thing by getting the highlights of 14 characters, many of whom people would know things about, 
from this point to this point, and then from this point to that point, and so on. And so he made it this tidy little list of, of 14s like that. And some have suggested that he might have chosen that particular number and grouping because it was also kind of a popular thing uh, amongst Hebrews uh, in ancient times to play with the values of, of words and letters and doing fun little math tricks with them, called gematria. And so they would, they would assign to each letter a numerical value. So like their, their numbers were, all, were their alphabet. And so if you wanted to do a three, you'd use, you know, alphabet, gamma, something like, those are, sorry. Um, <laughs> Aleph, bait, Himmel, right? Yeah. So they would, they would use these particular letter to represent the number. But then they would like to play with it. And David, for instance, if you take the letters, Dawid, if you take the letters, they didn't have vowels, it was consonants. So if you take the D and the V and the D and the numeric value, it comes up to 14. David's the central figure here. This looks like maybe Matthew was playing around with it. Does that change the validity of the, the text at all? No, it was completely understood and normal. Uh, amongst the readers to whom he was writing. And so we have a very true record of, of the descendancy, just kind of glossing over a few individuals along the way, but it was in such a way that a person could easily trace this genealogy. So that's just a little bit extra for free there, but, but that's why you see that being a little bit different from if you track every single individual testament record. Now, this is significant that the term... Christ introduced at this time because before, uh, he, he introduces it by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, putting those two together straight away from the beginning. And then he goes through this genealogy and he ends up saying, of Mary, uh, Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ is not his name, not his middle name. Not a family name. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Meshiach, Messiah. So to put these two together was in and of itself making a major declaration. Say Jesus Christ is saying, this person, Hebrew was Yeshua, same as Joshua, by the way. So this person, Yeshua, he's saying, is the Messiah. And he's showing this lineage, which is a partial proof of at least this heritage part of the Messiah, because the Messiah was promised to be a direct descendant of Abraham and Judah and David, etc. So he's beginning to establish the record here. Remember, Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience. And so he's appealing to Jewish sensitivities. That was the point. All right, so we have established the legal and genetic descendancy of Jesus, descendant from of Abraham and David. God made, had made these promises of this anointed one. Now we see the spiritual and the prophetic fulfillment of God's promises in partial evidence here. There's so much more than this. And, but here we see that we have God in the flesh by a miraculous virgin birth. And this 
another huge fulfillment of prophecy. It's unheard of. So, continuing in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Pastor Mike just mentioned a bit of an explanation about this, the significance of the Hebrew rothal. Not quite the same of, of, as our engagement. It was a, it was a, a legal binding um, relationship already. In fact, they were referred to as husband and wife during the betrothal time. But they were not to come together to fulfill the marriage sexually until the official ceremony took place but for them to engage with anyone else was considered adultery. It was very, very serious. And the judgment for that, the, the punishment, was death by stoning. So Joseph finds that his betrothed wife-to-be, Mary, is pregnant. He loves her. It was hard for him to believe this is true from what he knew of her, but, so, but he couldn't explain it. So he just thought, okay, rather than shame, you know, I, I, he's got a good reputation. He doesn't want that to be wrecked. By the time this is all, is all revealed, she's already going like, like four months into her pregnancy because when she first got the news from Gabriel, she found out at the same time that, that Elizabeth, her relative, was pregnant, and she went straight away to go spend that time with Elizabeth, and she spent the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy with her until John was born, and then she makes her way back home. So now she's in her fourth month, and things start to show up by this time. So now Joseph, you know, oh no, what do I do? Doesn't want harm to come to her. Got his reputation to uphold, so he's prepared to very quietly dissolve, legally dissolve their arrangement let her go off into hiding or, or whatever rather than bring her forward for capital punishment. So you can see the dilemma that he's in in the situation here. But verse 20, as he considered these things, hold, this is a strong term actually uh, in, in Hebrew writing, though it's written in Greek, it's written by Hebrew, this, this word, behold, this is like suddenly, and then, wow, I'll check this out. It's actually pretty strong. The writing there. And so he's thinking about these things. What is he going to do? And wham! An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, important reference there, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins. And we read the parallel passage in Luke that spells out more detail, right, of, the, of that explanation by Gabriel to Mary to say, this is how you'll become pregnant. The Holy Spirit will fall upon you. God's going to do a miracle to make you pregnant. And your son will be known as son of the most high God. So this is a condensed version we have in Matthew about this. But now he's being instructed to name him Yeshua, 
because that name specifically, the yeh part of it, the beginning of that is for Jehovah or Yahweh, and the rest of it means saves, Savior. So his name basically means Yahweh's Savior or Yahweh saves. So be told, this is what you're supposed to name your son. You're going to call him God's Savior. All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here, this is Matthew, for the sake of his Jewish readers, pointing out the fulfillment of prophecy here, saying, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So here you have Isaiah hundreds of years before the time of Jesus writing this. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so there's not a conflict here. Oh, well, I thought his name is Yeshua, Emmanuel. Well, this is a descriptive label. They'll call him Emmanuel. In other words, they will refer to him as God in the flesh. God with us. That's what God's Savior is. Who God's Savior is. God in the flesh. God come to be with us. Every time we sing Emmanuel in our carols, or especially those great hymn carols that use that word more there's significance to talking about God who came with us to be Savior. When Joseph, verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not, sexual reference, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name. God saved. Yahweh saved. So we see God in the flesh by miraculous virgin birth, and we see the fulfillment of prophecy for God's salvation through the Messiah, referenced there especially in those verses 21 and 22, and quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse. So this is what God told Adam that he would send someone, a human being, that would be an unusual, very special, unique human being who would deal with the sin problem. And he tells Abraham, one of your physical descendants is going to be the one who is going to be the blessing to all the nations, all the people. Then through Jacob, Judah is identified, 12 sons. It will be from this tribe that the anointed one, Messiah, comes. It will be ruler of all the people. And then from the tribe of Judah comes David, plucked out of the sheepfold, told, I'm going to be your descendant, who's going to rule and reign forever. That promised him. Then Gabriel shows up and talks to Mary. Mary, descendant of you're going to be by God's and firms with Joseph going to be considered your son son of David he is the promised one blessing to all 
In fact, he's the one who will. What amazing, momentous. How could anyone have imagined God would pull this off this way? If we were to investigate the, the whole long list of, of the prophecies, it just, it, it just blows the mind to imagine that this could all work out. That this could be orchestrated in such a way that all those prophecies could be fulfilled in one person. So no one could ever imagine they, throughout the years, what's the Messiah going to be like? When's he going to show up? How is it going to work that he's going to be from Bethlehem and Egypt and Galilee? How can he be born in Bethlehem, which is, you know, it's the city of David, yeah, but it's a poor little place. You know, how's he going to be the one who's going to, to rule and reign forever? I mean, the, 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 the line of David had been so diminished through the deportation and everything like that that, you know, they were of the royal line, but they weren't kings because they had been, you know, occupied and deported and everything like this. And so there, there wasn't a proper Jewish king of the, of the line of David. They knew who was in line, but right now it wasn't happening. Instead, you had Herod as the local king. He was, he was half Jewish and... and he was a mess. He didn't acknowledge Scripture or anything like that. So, so for this to be something that would be a real... They fought for the Savior, but they just couldn't figure out how God was going to work it out. And it was so amazing what God did that most of them missed. Because they had developed all these ideas of what the Messiah would be, with someone who would rise up and, and that would help them to overthrow the occupying Romans. Because it says he's going to rule and reign for over all the peoples, right? So they expected, well, he's going to come and he's going to raise up an army and he's going to kick the Romans out and he's going to establish the throne of David once again. And they had all these grand political ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to do and they got it so mixed up. Make sure that no one today We have the benefit, the privilege of having all the record of history, all the prophecies, and see them fulfilled in the oh, excuse me. <coughs> it's all been laid out for us. Promised Savior, and he was the Savior of he was to be the Savior of all the peoples, right? All the nations of the earth are, are to be blessed. So he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah of the world. He's the Savior. The world. It's for every country, every culture. No matter how far they may have strayed, no, mo- no matter what other things they have adopted along the way, according to God's plan, there is one way. That's through this promised one, this anointed one. This is unique plan. It had to be this way. It had to be God and human in order to satisfy God's justice on behalf of human beings. It had to be this way. But here are just things to take away. First of all, just reflect on the name. Jesus' very name means Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves, God's Savior, which aligns with the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, 
in Isaiah 7, 14. Let's also look at a couple of other New Testament passages here just briefly. Let's read them. Uh, let's look at John chapter 1. This is how John writes his gospel, how he begins his gospel, which is the good news of the life of Jesus Christ. John wrote for a broad audience. Matthew wrote Mark wrote primarily for Romans. Luke wrote primarily for Greeks. John wrote for a very broad audience. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. These are rather sweeping, all-inclusive and exclusive terms. Reference. Jump to verse 9, referred to as the light that came into the world in the verses. So now it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They missed it. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, spiritual birth into God's family. Verse 14, the Word came flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how John describes this amazing, miraculous fulfillment God's promise to and the Messiah. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, come to save us. In Colossians, Paul identifies Jesus similarly as God in the flesh. The very image of God, he says. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, referring to Christ already, Jesus in the context of the passage, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Of preeminence, not of logical order. Firstborn position of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Given the first. For in him, big statement, in him all the fullness of God. Through him reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his one way reconciled. Blood. One special image of that um, flesh like one of them. Secondly, well, oh, continue. 
God came to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, provide the only means of salvation to come guilt and judgment of our sin. That's a summary statement. And also, the name Jesus Christ, together, identifies this one person as the central figure of human history, the one sought after for so long. Peter refers to this, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced through those who preached the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So in other words, Peter is saying, well, those poor prophets back in the day, they were, they were writing for our benefit, and they didn't get to enjoy immediately the benefits. They were prophesying these things that they couldn't understand, and they searched, and they tried to understand, they tried to imagine, how is God going to do this? What's it going to look like? Who is he going to be? When is he going to show up? And they wrote according to the way they were led by the Holy Spirit, but they couldn't really understand exactly the significance of the things they were writing. And so Peter's saying they were serving you because now you have the benefit of seeing the fulfillment of all those prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. We share that blessing. Finally, he is not only the one sought after for so long throughout history, but he's the only one whom anyone can be saved. Once again, it's Peter who makes this declaration. As he's standing before judges who are threatening his life or threatening his freedom at the very least, saying, you have got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and you've got to stop calling him the Christ. Peter stood before them, and there's more, much more to the speech. He says, you you know, judge between yourselves whether I should obey you, men, or whether I should obey God. But he comes to this point in Acts 4.12 where he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He acknowledges Yeshua, Jesus, as God's Savior. He declared that there is no other Savior. There is no other option. And he was willing to lose his life and on that ground. So I wonder if we are as thoroughly convinced. I wonder if we are bold enough in our conviction to take a stand like that. People want to mock us, treat us like weirdos, because we believe this stuff in the Bible, because we Jesus is only way. We must be bigots because we think that we've got the answer. There's only this one way. What about the other people in this way and that way and all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm sorry. According to Peter and, and according to what we can see from the prophecy and the fulfillment, God's amazing plan throughout the ages over thousands of years, there's just one way. God worked it out throughout history, and it's arrogant to suggest that we can just choose some other way. God did this amazing thing. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. So, yes, it's nice, it's warm and, and fuzzy to think about a cuddly little baby nestled in a, in a bed of hay and cows standing by, mooing softly. And, you know, the sheep attending and everything. It's 
like this beautiful little pastoral scene. And how special. Let's sing about the baby cows and manger and the stars and all that kind of stuff. But really, God was doing something that was shaking the world by delivering this much-anticipated Messiah, this anointed one, this Savior, the Savior. And who would have thought? It was up to me to orchestrate this thing. This would look like a scene from Aladdin, right? With the whole big entourage with elephants and monkeys and trumpets and dancing people and all this kind of stuff, big band and everything. Woohoo! Here is the Messiah! Said, born in this bank, little cave, in this dirty animal slobbered on, chewed on trough, in a bed of hay wrapped in rags. This is the arrival. These. Only God. Only God. We see by that from the very beginning, and even from the people in the lineage of Christ, that he was the Savior for everyone, not for the rich people, not just for the powerful people. He was the Savior. In his lineage, bed is Rahab the heart. Mar, questionable. There's wife of a Hittite. There are Gentiles. There are with bad reputation. All these poor people, powerful people, his lineage there, delivered to this humble little town, little stall, in a little cave, in a little trough. This is the beginning. That, I think, that I want Every carol, even whether it's an old hymn carol or a new fun carol, I'm just going to be really celebrating and enjoying this wonderful thing that God has done. Because as we sang already this morning, Jesus came for this, came to save. I hope you have been as well. You have family and friends who are not yet. No, some of you it weighs heavily on your heart. Don't give up praying for them. Keep sharing the truth. Pray that God will open. Maybe you have a little bit better equipment. God gives you. Pray and ask God. Yeah, they're once in royal day. Father, we just cannot fathom what this thing is. None of us would have done it the way you. The way you laid out. Plans preserved a people and orchestrated history in such a way that you would deliver our Savior in such a humble and unexpected fashion. We are so thankful throughout the age had your mind set on us, loved us in this way that no one needs. No one needs to suffer your wrath for this. Only accept this salvation. By what of his reconciled. Thankful those of us who have, have become the beneficiaries of this great gift. 
Help us to be that much more thankful this year. Help us to be thoughtful. All the things that are part of our celebration of Christmas, help us to always be really at the way that you Help us to be ready to share this truth, this gospel message. Anyone that you have appointed for us to talk to, whether it's a neighbor, a stranger, a postie, Brady, a brother, a sister, a parent, nephew, whoever it may be, pray, Father, that you would help us not to miss these divine appointments. Ready to share. Or might have certainty that 